Welcome everyone to Twig 220. 220. That's a lot. How long have we been doing this? Three years? God damn it. It's too much. Um, today we have uh, Mr. Seifert here coming in last minute, talking bullshit. Uh, Laura is going to be absence of her tea. She, the tea has, has now been officially banned from the podcast because she was right in the middle of my rant. She's like clicking, clicking, clacking, clicking around. It's like, come on, Laura, get it together, right? Uh, Ethan is not joining us today because uh, he has more important things to do. Um, and Philip is here uh, to talk about CSGO um, and other things. So I'm going to give, I might start a new segment on the show. I, I've decided uh, by myself, clearly, is I'm going to do my hot take <laughs> in the first, in the first like five minutes. So any of you want the hot take, they can uh, they can tune in, uh, which is probably not a good idea in terms of keeping people tuned into the podcast. But I'm giving my hot take on Kotaku and their fucking bullshit reporting. I'm just so tired of reading their crap. I don't know why I torture myself. Um, we're gonna a little bit, do a quick update on Bobby and and got Bobby Kotick and Activision and some of the stuff that's going on there, and also talk about the complete lies that phil spencer is telling about these these this, this the battle pass which was un, unleashed in in the documents um in the uk um and what else a few earnings announcements and we're gonna kind of revisit scopely because we haven't talked about scopely in a long fucking time so i don't know it hasn't been in the news all that much so i'm i just took a quick look at scopely and what's happening there so uh any updates from ever, anybody nothing no no Boring, boring life oh, here. Lord. Oh, well, I have one. Well, my credit card was somehow stolen over the weekend and they decided to spend about $1,000 in Redmond, uh, $333 at GameStop. Really? Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> it was awful. To the moon. <laughs> That's wild. Must have been kids. Well, sorry for that. That's sorry. By the way, we haven't had that happened to me. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that happened to me like two or three weeks ago. Someone bought like a like a four thousand dollar flight on Virgin Atlantic um, with my business card, with my my company card, which was really annoying to have to close down because it's connected to like you know Gmail, you know my my professional Google account. It's connected to the whatever the hosting bill. So like I I kept getting all these emails saying like, oh, your account's gonna be deactivated if you don't pay the bill and it's like i had to like find every single recurring payment on the card and go update it with the new information super super annoying super oh annoying i'm doing i've started that process first, now first world problems <laughs> dude let's 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 oh my god let's renew our recurring subscription <laughs> i mean it's so, it's right. I mean, the humanity okay, of it all to, uh, to be fair it's, it's theft i got so it's like not a first world price i got stolen from but okay you're fine yeah so it's not the end of the world. It's yes. just annoying. Uh, I have to. I have to give a basketball update in ages. So I have to give a basketball update. They finished. They finished the series of a uh, of a uh, the made hoop series, and they finished. I think fourth or fifth, which is actually quite good, but second in their in their bracket. So they will have a really good position in the championship in Vegas in March 11th. So we'll see how they do. Uh, they seem to be coming together. But uh, some of the teams are just insane in terms of uh, talent. But um, anyway, yeah, so good for Jacob and his basketball career. Um, all right, moving on. All right, what do we got first? We have 
going to the top. All right. Oh, first, I, I have to make a correction because I actually, you know, part of my job has been looking at some of these blockchain gaming uh, games that are coming out in the next 18 months. And for the most part, they're fucking horrific, right? I mean, they're, they're it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know how these companies got funded, Greg. They're building games. It's bad. They, they make no <laughs> it's sense. It's web games. You know, like, it, it's like, oh, yeah, let's make another card game. You know, let's make another strategy game right like let's not innovate at all right let's just not know how to make games right so and so like i've been bitching and moaning about the fact that like these gajillion people got gajillions of dollars to build stuff and they never actually made games right they don't know what they're how to make games right so so i've been using this one company as the example of this um and 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 i and it's actually been unnamed i don't think i've actually said the name before i just said it was like six guys from hbo are building a startup to make a shooter. Um, and I have to apologize because all these guys, these guys actually built a pretty amazing team, you know, and, and, and they're actually designing a very actually reasonably compelling product, right? I really take, just take a look. It's called shrapnel and it's from a group called neon, but anyway, they pulled together a pretty great team of people that are making this game. And it's basically a shooter with the ability for people to make maps that based upon the success of the maps, they're actually paid in token, right? Um, it's a cool concept. There's lots more to it. I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but I'm not sure if it's going to work or be successful. I think there's there's a problems in the sense of getting, the game has to be good, right? And there has to be tons of people playing in order to make this thing work. And you have to find the people that are willing to make maps, which is fucking hard to make good maps. But the design is actually impressive and they're using their money and actually building something really cool. Now, Again, I want to be clear here. This does not change the fact that the majority of the founders that got funded in the blockchain fucking mania are have no experience whatsoever in making games, and we're starting to see that <laughs> the, the results of that. But um, and now you know these companies are scrambling, trying to figure out, oh, how do we make a game now? You know, and so like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just actually picked the wrong team to actually use as an example. So I apologize to the guys at Neon. I like what you guys are doing. I've looked at a lot of games in the space, and this is one of the ones that was the most interesting. So, um, yeah, I hope they are successful. Well, I think you, you also left out it's an extraction shooter, which is something that I've seen almost every FPF developer foam at the mouth for. Everyone thinks that they're going to be able to mainstream Escape from Torkov, which has been a game that's kind of gone under the radar in the mainstream. It's not distributed on Steam. It's direct-to-consumer. It's Russian. So there's been a lot of inability for this type of genre to break through to the mainstream and it's be it'll be interesting to see how they how they combine web 3 with the idea of a player losing a lot of their resources when they die in a game which is core to extraction shooters but so far no one's mainstreamed it everyone's taken a shot we saw the cycle take a shot they did a huge pivot from being a pve pvp battle royale almost completely changed the game engine into an extraction shooter they've had some success although they haven't been able to sustain in the long run you've seen dmz from call of duty take a stab at this you saw battlefield take a stab at this but so far no one seems to have mainstreamed these extraction shooter mechanics but i'm i'm sure there's more on the horizon and i think this is just one of them yeah i mean i i i really again blizzard's game is the one that i'm kind of hoping will be the uh, standard by which things are measured going forward, but I think it's far off. Um, all right. So my first hot take um, <laughs> is, is we're going back to Kotaku, right? I, I am constantly amazed at how terrible this outlet is. Um, and actually 
This was regards to the EA uh, paying $588 million for the rights to Premier League, I think is what it was. Sorry, yes. Um, That's okay. correct. Uh, now, what's interesting is that the actual title was not clickbait. It was actually a, a reasonably well thought out title. But the first paragraph, I almost threw up in my mouth. Okay, so this is the paragraph. Okay. <laughs> Programming and gameplay be damned. Sports game live and die on their licensing. It's why Madden was able to crush NFL 2K, why EA's FIFA, known as EA Sports FC, has been able to grind Konami's PES into the dust. Not because they're better games, but because they're, they paid to be the only games to feature the actual teams you want to see playing in the leagues you want to see them playing in. Okay. This is why Kotaku is the worst outlet in video games, right? He is right on one thing, for sure. The, the article is not wrong in what they are saying, but they leave out so much fucking context that it, 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 it's an embarrassment for them to be writing this stuff, right? So yes, these licenses create an absolutely massive advantage for EA and EA Sports uh, to make games. But welcome to the world of fucking business, okay? This is a business. This is not some benevolent thing that they're building, right? They want to make money, right? And and Kotaku continually acts as some you know medium that that is not run by business people, that they're living in some kind of utopian world in their high-rise offices in New York City. Come back to the real world and stop being self-righteous a-holes, okay? That's what I'm saying to Kotaku. Because first of all, Konami... Never make games never match the quality of EA from the get-go, right? They they focused on simulation. They didn't really focus on arcade. And that that's what fucked them in terms of, of them losing share, right? So the idea that their game, Konami's game was more was better than EA's is false. Fundamentally, it's false, right? Second, now, by the way, they're gonna say, well, the review scores were good. True. That is true. But in terms of what people wanted from the game, that's that. That's what they wanted EA Sports. Second, Konami had the ability to license all of this shit. They chose not to, right? They, they don't, the only exclusive that I think that EA has is the FIFA license, right? Which is, is a loss, but they still could have gotten the teams and the players. They chose not to. They wanted to do more of a simulation generic one, right? That's their bad. That's the bad, bad business decision by Konami, right? Um, and the third thing is this is like the same like, you know, kumbaya, like, you know, Marxist bullshit that they're they're spewing is that the Premier League is looking for, out for them. They want to make the best licensing deal possible, right? They know where the returns are going to be. They're going to go with EA, right? And so that helps them promote their brand and help promote their league within FIFA to help build their business, right? It's a fucking business. Stop it, right? I just wish that someone at Kotaku would step up and say, stop. Stop making these moronic posts, okay? Do your fucking homework. At least try to argue the other side. Be objective in some way, right? And get your head out of your ass, your self-righteous ass, okay? You know, and, and what's ironic, I, someone made this mention to me too, is like, they're a business as well, right? You know, and so, and I'm sure they're doing what's right for their business. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about Kotaku. Maybe they're just shoveling this shit sandwich to their customer base, right? Because yum, yum, that's what they love, right? They have, that's who their users are. They love this shit, right? But I, I swear, it feels like they, they appeal to like the lowest common denominator. There's no objective truth whatsoever in their coverage. And it's just on and on and on. Every time I read an article from these guys, it's like, stop it. Just stop. Think about what you're saying. Be objective. Try, try to 
try to be smart about this stuff and stop stop being so freaking biased in everything you write. Anyway, that's my thing. I I actually I have to read Kotaku just for the laugh, right? And just to show to see like how idiotic someone could be about this business. Um, but anyway, that's my that's my quick rant on 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 Kotaku. Fuck all, fuck you guys. <laughs> I'm so sick of listening to your shit. Anyway, um, all right, moving on. Uh, oh God, why am I? Go- I'm the one who keeps going and going here. Okay, Microsoft. Okay, so finally Microsoft admits <laughs> it's forced to say the fucking obvious, right? Say the secret out loud, right? That uh, games are cannibalizing. Uh, sorry, subscriptions are get cannibalizing their game sales. So Game Pass subscriptions are cannibalizing game sales. Um, so uh, this was in, I think, a UK. Uh, uh, competition markets authority report right where they basically kind of had to admit it you know and say say this out loud so the quote was microsoft submitted that its internal analysis shows a a, some kind of redacted percent decline in base game sales 12 months following their addition to game pass the cma noted in their support um dude this is not fucking rocket science right of course if you put forza horizon in a fucking subscription like sales are going to decline i mean it's it's so moronic that this is even like a question to anybody out there but phil spencer in a previous quote said this and this is what people should be focused on when you put game like forza horizon 4 on game pass you instantly have more players in the game which actually leading to more sales of the game lie wrong not correct spencer said adding you say, well, isn't everyone just doing the subscription to subscribe for $10 and go play this thing? But no, gamers find things to play based on what everyone else is playing, which <laughs> is so inherently wrong. I, I Anyway, so what all I'm saying is that if you put something in a subscription, it's not going to sell as well, right? But the next logical conclusion that you have to build is that if you have a subscription with all these amazing first-party games, shooters, racing games, action games, it will reduce the sales of third-party games on the platform for the same fucking reason, right? This this would ultimately make the platform less attractive developers, resulting in less games made for the platform and ultimately reduce the choice and the quality for the customer. And this is why these subscriptions are not necessarily good for the customer long-term. And what I wrote in my piece on LinkedIn, we're going to send out an article tomorrow about this on, uh, on, on Deconstructor of Fun. So again, they're just getting caught up in their own bullshit lies and, and, and get, it's all getting called out because of all the scrutiny on these, on these regulatory bodies. Um, and, uh, and I will say, um, and we're going to get to a few other things about this as well. God, we got to stop talking about this stupid thing, but um, it does look like this deal is not happening. <laughs> Bobby and 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 Armin are out there pitching their uh, their their company to investors, trying to get the shareholders back in. And I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of the big things about these huge companies is they want to have as much stable ownership as possible, right? The the, the way you do, you do not want your shares trading um, all over the place. Like if you look at like AppLovin, IronSource, Unity, all these companies are just trading up and down constantly, right? The, the the way to stabilize your share price is to get huge investors like T Row and and Fidelity and Cap Group and all these big guys to own big chunks of your stock, which make it less volatile, right? Because they're long term holders and they hold it for a long time. Time, it's, 
I'm not going to go into why that is. And so what Bobby and, and Armin are out there doing is trying to get those investors into the stock again, because right now all we have in the stock is the speculators, right? So we have the ARBs and, and hedge fund hotels that are just like, sorry, I shouldn't say it that way. Hedge funds that are just basically trading the stock, you know, or, or it's not the right type of shareholders. So anyway, they're making a concerted effort to get those people back because I think they assume that this deal may not come through. So that's kind of the, the speculation on my part. So, all right, I think I'm going to take a breath and, uh, and go get some coffee like I need it. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. But uh, Laura, what do you got? Well, kind of following your your story, there was one that if the deal doesn't go through, which is what we're um, hypothesizing, I think it was uh, Kotech, Bobby Kotech is going to remain uh, CEO of Activision. Um, and what has been, I don't know if I would call this announced, but what has been picked up by a number of articles is Activision's now push to a mandatory return to office. Um, so I'll, I'll, a couple a couple sources picked this up, but um, I'm going to read a couple things. So what, what came out as, I think, an email, again, this is from the articles, an email that was either leaked or something was copy and pasted in front, on, I believe it was on Twitter. The expectation is for employees to be within a reasonable commute to the office for which they were hired. As a result, there are no permanent remote work opportunities. And specifically, this is in QA. So I think this person asked, they must have been in the QA team. And I picked this actually first because 
I think this has, for me, this has a lot to do with kind of expectation. So my first question was, is employees that were hired as part of remote, like a kind of a, a remote setup, um, were the, was the expectation that they would stay remote, therefore they accepted the job knowing that they were not in sort of a commutable dif- distance, or um, did they relocate once kind of everything uh, everything kind of changed? And the, what I'm curious about is whether Activision is actually going to pay for relocation or make exceptions. It sounds like there won't be any exceptions. Um and I had just a quick look around. This is, I mean, there's been, I think, a, a rather, there's a lot of big debate on this. A lot of people think that people, it is more important to go back to the office for building relationships, building loyalty, having, you know, potentially better pr- productivity. And then there's a, I think there's a lot of people that push back and say this flexibility that I need to, you know, to do my job well or to, for whatever reasons, um, and it's important for them. So, Deconstructor of Fun, actually, this was number seven in the predictions for 2023, that there would be, I don't want to say a reckoning, but there would definitely be a return, a push for return to office. And this is a little bit of probably the first, This I, I'm trying to think if this is the first one in gaming. I know tech's already been pushing people to come back, but for for gaming, I would say this is probably the, the biggest one I can think of that I've seen. Has it has, has any just, just so I'm not missing anything? Has anyone else seen that like kind of the big companies doing a push? No, no, yeah. So I wonder if this is going to be that domino that other companies will follow suit or not. Um, but it does bring up a lot of questions. I mean, for I think the biggest one is what do you, what happens to those people that are no longer within commutable distance? How do we do we just say nope? We don't want you anymore. Find a way to move back, whether or not you can afford to live in the area or it's convenient for you or your kids are in this school district or um, whether there'll be like actual accommodations made to make it as easy as possible. I, I think there's one more powerful weapon, which is just paying people location-based pay. I think that will generally get them back to the office if you're going to pay them based on their <laughs> local wages yeah. when they've moved to the suburbs. That seems like the ultimate, the ultimate company play. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I but I also I my sense is that I don't think people were hired with the expectation during COVID with the expectation they'd be able to work remotely forever. I, I, I would be surprised if if anybody was given that sort of whatever benefit or or sort of promise. Right. My sense would be that, you know, you're hired during COVID. Hey, you're going to work remote for now, but we, we have no idea when or if we're going to go back to the office. I don't think if anybody was given uh, a job, you know, with the explicit stipulation that you'll be able to work remote for forever, then they should be able to work remote for forever or be given severance if they're laid off. Like it's not, you know, th- th- if that's what's in your contract, that's what's in your contract. But I, I've never, I haven't heard of anybody who got hired with the explicit stipulation that they can be remote forever. Like that, I just don't think a company would do that. Why would, you know, who, who wants to try to forecast the future like that? Yeah. I, I, the only thing I would say, I, I don't, I, I Anecdotally, I think I agree with you, Eric. I think most people were like, "Okay, well, yeah, you can be remote, but you know, that's this is not forever type thing." Um, there's some exceptions to that, but what I will say is is less anecdotally is it's pretty clear that working from home for game development has not been a great thing, right? Like it is pretty clear by most people's measures that games have been constantly delayed, right? There's been so many different delays of games. It's been really, really challenging for AAA companies to make make games and execute well against their SKU plans. Like there's been delays. Obviously, Ubisoft's been a disaster. EA's been a disaster. Take-Two hasn't gotten anything out in a long time. 
Um, Activision is finally executing, but like, you know, it was, it was a challenge, but I think COVID really kind of delayed and, and hurt the overall gaming, at least in the AAA space. Um, but, but that's COVID. That's not remote work. Those are two different no, things. No, but they're, they're the same. Well, okay, fine. But they're the same thing in the sense that the, that the disruption that was created by COVID was because everyone was working from home, right? Sure. But the question, the question is, is going forward, are you going to be able to produce more output with a remote work policy or with an in-person policy? And including all the things that come with having a remote work pers- uh, policy or on-site, am I able to hire remotely or do I have to hire locally? And I think it's much less clear that productivity is either higher or lower based on whether or not you're remote work or on-site. I, I mean, we just saw Supercell today go in the opposite direction I would, and start to say that they're going to consider European-based hires I, I outside re- of Helsinki. I would respectively disagree uh, on, on, on the I'm just asking the question. I'm not necessarily making a claim here, but I'm saying like that is the that is the company measure that you would take is where is productivity the highest under what policy? I'm, it, it seems to me that it's it's way too early to say whether or not we have evidence one way or the other where your productivity is the highest. Wait, sorry. I'm sorry. I got distracted. My wife is texting me. <laughs> My son got in trouble on something. Sorry. What did you say? Would you not, not shooting enough hoops? No, no, no. He uh, is being disruptive in class. I mean, who would have thunk, right? Um, okay. Was there a question for me or there on that one? No. no, I know. The, the only thing I would say is if you're a firm, I mean, it's a pretty clear decision rule. Where is my output the highest with a remote work policy or with an on-site policy? And it's much less clear what the answer is to that question this this early into a remote work. I mean, this is a radical shift in how we all work and communicate and hire. So I would say it's far too early, I think, to make a decision on that. But again, Supercell just went the other direction. So I don't know if this is a sea change quite yet. Um, yeah, if I, but that's I think it's 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 silly to try to say that you know there should, one of them is better than the other broadly you know as a rule right I mean it's a company specific decision but my 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 sense has been since the onset of COVID that this was temporary it's gonna we're gonna revert back to in offices the norm right because there's a reason that there's a reason we go to offices every day like offices are expensive if there was no benefit companies wouldn't want to pay for, you know, to carry that real estate expense. There's a, there's, there's a control uh, benefit, right? There's just a, a happenstance uh, and serendipity benefit. Um, there's just a visibility benefit. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you'd want people working from an office every day um, that, you know, can be accounted for either with like direct kind of like dollar level benefits or just like sort of soft uh, you know, ambient benefits. And, and, and we've been doing that for a long time for a reason. I, you, but you can't, there's, it's silly to say like, oh, work for home is better or work from office is better. Like, it's, of course, it's context dependent. I guess like I go back to the productivity question though. And if you're just looking at it on a productivity basis, clearly there's a technological factor that makes you more or less productive when you're a remote worker. And there's obviously some things that are unchangeable, like time zones, language barriers, cultural barriers, but technology can still influence productivity. So I don't, you know, certainly there has been a reason that we've gone into the office for the large part of what, at least modern economic history, but it's unclear to me why we'd expect that also to be the same in the, in the future. Like the institutions are changing, like our productivity tools are changing. I think there's good reason to believe that you can see shifts over time. 
again, I'm not necessarily saying that's that's a prediction, but I think there's clear factors we can draw between the availability of remote work and the availability of technology. Let's just let's just get to this Oculus this Oculus headset. I think that will that will clear everyone up. That will that will change the mind of everyone. You're out of your mind. All right, moving on. Uh, all right. Um, wait, what are we just coming off of? Uh, we're, we're on the app loving earnings. Right. So we had app loving earnings last week. They had a blowout. Uh, stock was up thirty percent after hours. Just a couple stats here, and there's something I really want to um, hover over, but I'll just kind of. Uh, rattle off some of the stats. So the software platform, which is basically all the ad tech um, plus like a discovery app that they have, revenue grew 24% year over year. Uh, they said primarily due to app discovery and ALX. ALX is the exchange. App discovery is the uh, is the demand uh, uh, tool. Um, and and the software platform delivered 44% of the company's total revenue. So if you think about app loving, you got to look at there's two businesses basically. There's the content business. The software platform slash call it ad tech business. Thus, the the software business is high margin. The content business is low margin. They they said in the earnings call that they've kind of uh, managed the process uh, basically to completion of you know uh, jettisoning jettisoning the lowest performing studios and games, uh, and they feel like they're in a stable place with the content business. Um, but the content business historically had been the biggest uh, and still is the biggest. Uh, uh, proportion of revenue, but the software platform is, is growing as a percentage, right? So they're highlighting that percentage. Almost, I kind of think about like when Zingo is transitioning to mobile, every quarter they highlighted like what percentage of their bookings were mobile, right? Just to showcase that they'd been growing that because obviously the, the desktop business, the flash business, the Facebook business was was in decline and, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, secularly in decline. And, and they wanted to showcase that they were growing the mobile side. Well, Apple Oven 2, they're, they're, show, they're highlighting that the, the software pr- uh, proportion of the business is growing, right? Um, okay. So put that aside. One thing that they uh, revealed in the earnings, which I didn't really see anybody else latch onto, but I think is very, very interesting and very, very instructive when interpreting these results, right? Was that they said, and this was kind of like a throwaway comment, but it's, it's, I think it's, 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 it, it delivers like some really important insight. Uh, Adam, the CEO said uh, he asked someone on the team to 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 get a, a guesstimate, right, of of what percentage of top games use Max as their SSP, right, as their mediation platform. And this analyst came back and they said of the top 100 most downloaded games, so not grossing but downloaded, two thirds were using Max. That is big, and that I think explains the revenue beat. I think it explains the success on the software platform side. Right. My, you know, I, uh, my sort of whatever estimate guess uh, hunch had been that App Lovin, uh, through the acquisition of Mopub, uh, owned about more than half. Uh, and my sense was it was like slightly more than half. So let's call 55% of uh, the SSP market, of the mediation market. That was my hunch. Well, apparently it's, it's two thirds. Now that's top 100 games. So maybe, maybe the uh, proportions change when you go further down. Uh, the long tail, but my sense is it's probably that probably stays consistent, or maybe it even increases. So they have two thirds of the SSP market of the mediation market, right? That is extraordinary, right? Now that is what's feeding all the data back into the app discovery side on the DSP side on the demand side, and allowing them to 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 you know beat to be really successful uh, the market, right? Like to beat the market, to be, to be, to outperform the market. Right. But I don't, that, that number had never been revealed. People had estimates. I think most people were in line with mine more than half, slightly more than half. turns out it's two thirds. 
that's extraordinary, right? Like that's 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 a very large proportion of the market. So I wanted to call that out. I thought it was important, and people I think had kind of dismissed that. They saw it as a throwaway line. The other uh, interesting uh, headline for me is Roblox announced earnings. Stocks up twenty three percent today. Uh, revenue is five hundred seventy nine million, up two percent year over year. Okay, not great. But bookings were up nine hundred million, up seventeen percent a year. Right. So uh, and and engagement was up. DAU was up nineteen percent. Uh, hours engaged was up eighteen percent. Um, so uh, pretty pretty decent. Well, very strong quarter. And then I think you know the other thing they called out in the earnings was that they saw um, a, a sort of like uh, disproportionate increase in growth amongst the users that were over 17 years old, right? So that, and again, they're highlighting the fact that they're aging up the audience. That's kind of a key uh, growth vector for them. Uh, and then finally, I just want to call out uh, my buddy Nebo. He wrote an excellent piece. I think he published it last week. So exactly a week ago, uh, the, the piece is called The Case of Playrix and Why Product Market Fit is a Moving Target. I would recommend everybody go read that. It's on Medium. Um, and he talks about Playrix's sort of an adaptation to ATT, but it, it gives a lot of really helpful context for interpreting um, how uh, gaming companies should be adapting to ATT, and it uses Playrix as an example. It's a very well well written piece, makes some great arguments. Recommend everybody go read that. Um, my quick comments on both App Eleven and Roblox. More App Eleven is that this is what's known as a short squeeze. <laughs> Just to be clear, the stock is still down like eighty percent from its high. Yeah, and, fair and enough, uh, and People were short this all the way down, and 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 they probably just released a little bit better than people expected, and so the shorts get squeezed, they buy, and the stock goes up a lot. And I think Roblox is similar in a way, but I would be buyer beware on both of these. <laughs> and it's probably because Kathy Wood is starting to like buy Unity and buy all these stocks like in droves right now, as as uh, as she's trying to recover from her huge losses. Um, so anyway, be careful out there. Yeah, well, so just um, and and that was Facebook as well, right? So Facebook, I mean, shorts were all over, the sharks were circling yeah. Facebook, and 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 they were very successful uh, over the last year, basically. Yeah, I mean, right? It, it, yeah, you have to always look at the long term fundamentals of these companies and where they're headed, and so short term results don't mean long term trends. So just just keep that in mind. Um, all right, Scopely. So there was an article about Scopely that uh, a former uh, uh, executive at Activision named Eric Wood, who I don't know at all. Actually, I don't even know anything about him, to be honest. He's joining Scopely as senior VP of publishing, which is a big role, right? You know, that's, you know, got everything that has to do with getting your game out there, including UA, relationships with the um, the 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 platforms um, licensing I mean every, almost everything comes to so that's a big role so that's a good get I mean Eric is kind of a I looked at his background um, I, I I was gonna I was gonna start to like uh, bang on him a little bit because he's worked at Nike right but I, what I found out he's he worked at Zynga he worked at EA um, and Activision he's done partnerships work the whole time so he's familiar with the whole business of gaming so he's a good get. You have to understand these senior level executives at this level are very hard to find, right? They're very hard to find people like this with this type of experience that can run a publishing organization. And I'm not suggesting he can run it well. I don't know, but I'm just saying like, it's really hard to find these people. Um, and so that's good. Um, let's see. So I thought, you know, like I haven't looked, looked at Scopely in so long. I don't know why it just hasn't been kind of on, on the mind recently. Um, 
you know, they, their latest moves is that they acquired uh, the Stumble Guys um, and they also launched uh, Kingdom Maker. Um, they, uh, they made some strategic investments in Berlin Games. I don't know that company. I don't know what they're doing. Um, and then from Laura, I think you said Omnidrone, Pixel Toys, and Tag Games. They made some investments as well. But other than that, like they've been kind of quiet. <laughs> So I went. I just went and looked at the App Annie data on these guys, um, and 2022 was just not a great year for them, right? Um, they are coming off insane growths in uh, 2021, where they were up like 13, percent and then in in 2020 they were up 71, percent driven primarily by the addition of Fox Marvel Strike Force. Um, so they were down 18 percent in 22 um, overall, and a lot of what helped them grow was the uh, acquisition of Stumble Guys, right? Uh, without that, they would have been down about 24%. Um, so part of that is because their core franchises, Star Trek and Marvel and Walking Dead, are all down pretty significantly. Star Trek's down 31%, Marvel's down 32%, and Walking Dead's down about almost 50%. So again, these franchises are getting old first of all, but I think they are right in the crosshairs of Apple's global mobile recession, right? They are, they optimize the crap out of these games to help them grow. But now I just don't think they are delivering the results in this environment. I mean, it's hard to grow these things profitably when you can't target spenders, right? I mean, that's fundamentally a problem. Um, but the rest of their stuff, the casual, the casino stuff is doing a little bit better, uh, but still down year over year. Um, but the biggest issue I see, see with Scopely, or at least looking from the data, is the lack of like any new releases. Like I, I mean, I've been told that they are working on a gajillion different things, but they just haven't released shit. You know, they released uh, Kingdom Maker, but that failed to get much traction. You know, it did a couple million. It's not that interesting. Um, I don't see it much in the soft launch now. This may be hidden away from me, so I don't know. Uh, but I, I again, I know that they're working on tons of projects, but that was not something I saw. The only the last project that was in beta that 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 was was a prospect was Avatar, but they pulled that and canceled that game. That was from the Fox guys. Um, so anyway, it seems like from a product perspective, they're in a, they're in a tough spot uh, because they I, I just can't imagine they can grow their core franchises this year either uh, or next year for that matter. So they need new product, right? I mean, they just need new product. Um, and if you didn't remember, the company has raised over a billion dollars from VCs and others, right? I mean, that's a lot of money to raise. The last valuation round was $3.3 billion. Um, they became insanely profitable at one point uh, because of all the, the scale that they built in their main two games. Uh, I don't know where that is now, but they have over... <laughs> they have over 2,000 motherfucking people at this place. You know, that's a lot of people. Right, that's a lot of people. Um, so I don't know, the, but this the, you know the, the, this is kind of like the same story as some of the other bigger publishers like Zynga, Stillfront, EA, Playrix. Right, they they acquire all these companies to grow, but they just lack the ability to actually build games internally. Um, and so we, so but again, like they are like one or two games away from significant growth, but we need to see like that they can actually execute against that. And in a world in which you can't scale UA because of, of Apple's draconian policies, I don't know how will they, they, they will get back to growth. So 
it seems like a very, 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 very challenging place to be right now. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data, and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. Any comments from the from the peanut gallery, Mr. Phil? I guess I would ask both Eric's here. I mean, I thought this was part of both of your thesis in terms of what type of games would succeed in a post-IDFA world. It would be these games that have good third-party integration. Like they have, they have first of all, strong casual portfolio. They've bought GSN. They have Yahtzee, which is a extremely casual game. They bought another match three maker, which is in Spain. And they have a ton of IP integration that appeals to a broad range of people. I mean, isn't this supposed to be the exact type of company that should be able to weather IDFA? Uh, well, <laughs> my take is that like uh, they their games, the majority of their revenue is being driven by games that don't fit the criteria, right? So I, I agree with you with the license side, but like Marvel Strike Force and Starfleet are, are two games that are like super core in their execution, right? So they, they still are targeting whales. But, um, oh, I will say, by the way, I want to make clear this because I know I'm going to get 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 flack for this, is that this does not include ad revenue. So I'm sure their ad revenue may, may have been growing during this time. So that may have offset some of the declines on in-app purchases because Yahtzee with Buddies and Dice with Buddies um, all do extremely well. Please don't forget Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, right? Sorry, there's the, there's a lot of games like that that they do quite well. So I just want to be clear on that point. But um, but the in-app purchase stuff is bad. Um, 
No. I mean, I, I think they have to be even more casual in their execution if they want to like compete in the new world order, right? So maybe maybe we'll see them work on that. But they can't generate positive... It's going to be really hard to generate the revenues that they were generating from Marvel Strike Force and Fleet Command with more casual monetizing games, you know? So... Yeah, I would just add there because um, I wrote a thing about Candy Crush last week, and you know, just kind of examining their success through this last year. And you know, they grew twenty percent. They so they they phrased it in an awkward way in the in the in the print release. They they, they didn't do like an analyst call because it's uh, Activision still the transaction still whatever ongoing. Um, but they, they phrased it in an awkward way when they talked about Candy Crush saga like the og candy crush revenues they say they revenues grew 20 percent year over year each quarter in 2022 but they didn't say what the yearly growth rate was but i mean i mean you could think about what that probably is but um so and my point was oh yeah that's exactly the type of game that would do well in it with against the backdrop of att and i i wrote about this in 2020 i i had a i wrote a, a piece called idfa deprecation winners and losers and i just categorized content ad tech and platforms and like which would do well and which would not do well and i said casual games would do well um especially if they were propelled by a brand or some sort of like known ip um right and they were you know geared towards a broad audience and i guess the point there is they they could do well right like they had the potential to do well and and candy crush did right but that doesn't mean every single casual game is going to do well against att a lot of casual games were operating ua as if they were running core games because the game didn't have a broad appeal and the game wasn't uh, didn't have the core mechanics of a, of an actual casual game. It was a ca- it was a core game dressed up like a casual game, and those casual looking games didn't perform well. And and some you know people commented on the piece that like, well, you know, other games that were casual didn't do well. So I think your thesis is broken. <laughs> and my my thesis is they could do well. They might not execute well, but they could do well. They're positioned to do well, right? So I don't I don't know that you could say that like, well, here's a here's some casual games that didn't do well. So that disproves the thesis. Uh, it, it, you know, they just maybe didn't execute as well, or or maybe they weren't actually um uh at their heart casual games uh and they were not being operated like casual games i don't know uh, you know i i don't want to comment on scopely because i don't know too much about them but if you look at what has playtica been doing they've been very very quickly trying to shift their revenue into the casual side of the portfolio and they even flipped it from minority to majority like why would they be doing that uh within the att environment because those are the types of games that can do well uh with the restrictions of att so I, i think like you have to look at it that way you might not you might not execute well, or your game might not really be that broadly appealing. But if it is, and if it's buoyed by a strong brand like Casual, uh, like Candy Crush is, well, then you have the potential to do well uh, within the restrictive environment of ATT. So I guess put another way, when I think about what predicts CPIs, you could imagine that there's both the brand or IP that you have, and there's also the genre that you choose. Why isn't it the case or I guess why would it be the case that genre is more predictive or has a stronger relationship with CPIs than brand? Because your your analysis is really focused on genre, casual, mid-core. That is the main determinant here. But I guess why wouldn't the brands really be delivering the CPI kind of power here? Why isn't Star Trek, Marvel, Strike Force, like why aren't these the things that we could point to as well, being really influential on driving downloads? Well, because I mean, you need retention too, right? You can't just throw out the most core game possible to every fan of Marvel and expect them to to <laughs> play the game, right? And, and spend, right? So it has to be casual gameplay, right. ultimately, to keep people engaged, you know? Um, 
Th- that's fine, and that would affect DAU. But if we were looking at downloads, I mean, genre is something that's really only exposed past download. It's only something you really interact with past download. Shouldn't brand be more predictive of CPI and genre be more predictive of retention? Well, no, no, because you see that in the games. You see that in the store page too, right? Like, so that's the th- that's the problem. There's got to be alignment between these three things. I, I wrote a piece many years ago called the. Uh, uh, what was it? The the power triad of resonance in mobile gaming, and I said you've got to match the mechanic with the aesthetic uh, and the tone, right? And and the, the the point I made is if you had uh, you know remember a Kim Kardashian game, it was like a colorful kind of cartoony looking title, and it was like a life sim. All those these three things match together. Bringing Kim Kardashian to that makes a lot of sense. If you put Kim Kardashian in uh, uh, whatever uh, you know some some weird uh, hardcore uh, strategy game. It's probably not going to do much. It's not going to do you any favors. That's going to make Kim Kardashian's fans more likely to click on the ad. But when they get to the game page, they're going to say, what the hell is this? Like, I don't want to play a strategy game. I don't want to do base building. I want this kind of fun, bubblegum, cartoony, comic booky game experience. And so, and that, okay. I hope I don't get canceled for just saying that. Uh, Kim Kardashian fans, I'm sure, are, are you know, well-rounded, great people, and they would love a strategy game. But when they see Kim Kardashian, that's not what they're thinking. Right, they're thinking uh, keeping up with the Kardashians and like this kind of lightweight, airy reality TV. Please don't assume that oh, I mean enough. Kim Kardashian fans Stop are stupid. Digging. It could only Stop digging, Eric. You get my You're point. Right. You You're get okay. my point. It's a you safe. My, sp- you it's get- a safe place, Eric. <laughs> well, it's, just, it's between the four of us. It is, but uh, you know, a lot of people are going to hear this. <laughs> this has anyway, to, my, there has to my be point. IP genre alignment. Basically, is what this all means. exactly. And so, like, right. without exactly. getting into specifics, yeah, I, I think that's pretty key and i think there, there are examples of like advertising methodologies of of of, of showing most of the casual gameplay for games and, I, and i'm blanking like things like uh oh my god i'm totally blanking on the names of these games that bring a ton of people into the game they download more than they should but that doesn't mean they're retaining the, the, those players right so they're like it's like the bait and switch type thing um with ad advertising and that means that they get more downloads and maybe they on the margin they get more players but ultimately the players that stay are the ones that like that type of game or that kind of type of mechanics right so. yeah well i mean there's there's a specific you could point to which is uh angry birds rpg right it was like an rpg strategy game wrapped with the angry birds ip and it just it didn't work because you got a lot of a lot of kids downloading it and then they get into the game like, what is this? This is not this is not really like the Angry Birds I know. And it's also like it's not a type of game I would like to play. Right. So the, the IP actually worked against the game. The game probably would have been more successful without that IP. Right, right. right. All right. What else do we got today? Ah, anyway. Uh, CSGO. Yes, let's do this. CSGO has hit an all-time record of 1.3 million concurrent or simultaneous players on Steam. This is an all-time high for the game 11 years after launch. Unbelievable, true forever franchise. In 2008, or excuse me, 2018, CSGO switched from being a paid product to being free to play, which is really, I think, where you start to see the second wave of growth for CSGO. They had an initial period after 2012 all the way into 2015, which almost mirrors the growth of the Steam platform. They're very well correlated with the growth of the Steam platform during this early period. They have this equilibrium period where they kind of have stable DAU 
from 2015 all the way to 2017. And then you kind of get into the end of 2018. You have this free-to-play release, which kind of buoys their growth for the next couple years. But the main question here is how have you been able or how has Valve been able to continue to grow this game over the course of 11 years, which is absolutely unbelievable, incredibly successful for Valve. It always seems to be number one on the Steam DB charts. In the last, I would say, year, it's really become a mainstay as number one. And I think there's there's a couple of things that we could point to to explain some of the ways Valve has been able to grow. And I think, not again, not just this franchise, but almost all of their key franchises that have live service components continue to rank in the top 15 or top 20 parts of Steam. We saw in the last week that Valve is packaging together more content for Team Fortress 2. They've always been including items from their workshop or from the community and approving those into Team Fortress. But they're going to be dropping more first-party content in Team Fortress. And that's a game that I think most people have kind of been disconnected from, but it continues to do really, really well. Dota continues to do well. It's had a second growth spurt. It had a depression, but it seems to be in a great place these days. So Valve has created these franchises, these forever franchises, and they've done it. And I think, again, one of the smartest ways you could possibly imagine, which is that they've outsourced nearly all the work to players, and they've really built institutional tools that have made their game successful. So when you think about the Steam Workshop, it's a place where players can submit content for Valve to approve into the game. And if there is some sort of monetary component like cosmetics, Valve will share 20-25% of the revenue with creators. And so not only are you able to submit new cosmetics for the game, but you can also create things like maps. And with this in mind, you can basically outsource content creation to your players, which is one of the most expensive parts of game creation. And that's what Valve's done. That's how they're able, I think, in many ways to maintain the same headcount they've had over the same period of time, over 11 years without growing, but still being able to grow these key franchises is just outsourcing this content to players. So not only do they have this Steam Workshop, which I think does a lot of the content heavy lifting, they also have the Marketplace, which has been, I think, a huge innovation. Web3 before Web3, the ability for players to list cosmetic items and for players to bid against them. So you can have floating prices. And this is where we've seen all these stories of, you know, $10,000, $15,000 CSGO skins. While you can't do that on the Steam platform, they have price caps. What you can do is you can trade off platform because the item is tradable between different accounts. That's why you're able to see kind of these ten, fifteen thousand dollar items. But again, if an item is selling for ten to fifteen thousand dollars, even if Steam isn't taking a cut of that directly on the platform, what ends up happening is that people will keep opening loot boxes until the average price of the contents equals the market price. So Valve is still picking up a lot of the upside when you see prices like this, when they're able to float and players are able to trade, whether or not they take place on the platform. I think the other consequence of the marketplace, however, and I think this actually subtracts from the story of having so many different players, is that an auction house or open marketplace or you know a game system in which you have tradable items creates a large opportunity for bots and not just you know a small amount of bots a large amount of bots and we all remember the stories of kind of the chinese gold farmers in world of warcraft but these bots can actually account for a significant share of the psu and it's sometimes it's hard to know when you're looking at a lot of this first party data whether or not you're looking at a large share of bots or whether or not you're looking at real world players but on some of the games i worked on i mean you could be looking at 10 to 20 percent of what your the, player base the, actually what are the bots, bots doing 
So they're, they're farming resources and then they're selling them on third-party websites. Again, you can only do this when you have transferability in games. How do you farm resources in... Maybe I don't know understand CSGO anymore. Let me... I think there's a lot of people in the audience that don't know what CSGO is, but CSGO, from my understanding, is a super hardcore shooter where it's like super tactical. And if you try to go in there right now as a, as a newbie, you will just get your ass handed to you. I mean, it's like the worst possible experience for new users, which is even more remarkable at how they maintain their user base. But what I don't understand is like, what are these bots being used for and, and what, are they, what, are they, what are they collecting? So they can, you can still earn resources. You can still earn cosmetics, regardless of whether or not you win. You can still progress in a game. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you just set up dummy matches or you create any system in which you can auto-progress or you can autopilot anything, you can then collect items and then you can flip them. I see. So basically, these bots are just playing the game and getting resources for playing, completing games. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. Yep. Makes sense. So you can create a lot of simple bots to be able to do this if you need more, more sophisticated behavior, like you need to be able to move around or, you know, there's there's a number of kills. You can set up bots versus bots. There's a lot of ways to do this, but as long as there's an economic incentive to do it and the benefits outweigh the cost, you see a lot of this in games with marketplaces. Right. And this is basically, this is a great example. Well, this is one of the only examples of marketplaces within games as it relates to uh, blockchain, right? So like a lot of people are using this as a reference point from that perspective, right? And so I actually think it works against them because the the question has always been like, why hasn't the Steam marketplace spread in games? So if you think about the benefit of the Steam marketplace, it should be the difference in revenue you get between whatever alternative system you have and the additional revenue you could get when prices float with the Steam marketplace. I've always suspected that's high. I thought that's a high number. When you see items go for $10,000 on CSGO, you know, those aren't prices that developers developers themselves would choose. And so it feels like there's a large benefit to the platform, but it's had very, very little adoption, which really, I think, raises questions to me about how important a marketplace is for for Web3. How much does this matter? <laughs> You're preaching to the choir, dude. Exactly. I don't think that's fun, right? I, mean, I don't think people want this shit, you know, but whatever. Okay. And, and people extract value and cheat. And it's like, it's really hard to manage, like you're saying. All right. All right. No, I agree. Um, yeah, I also, I'm not quite sure I understand the bot prop proposition here, but I could just not be getting it. One, I have a fun question for all of you. How much do you think Valve is worth? Like, well, if they were acquired today, what would the acquisition price be? Oh, man. I used to know. What is the revenue? What's the revenue on the, they get from the store? No idea. I mean, is that public? No, I don't. It's, that's what I don't know. If I knew that, because I know their profitability is like absolutely through the moon. Um, how about this? They're worth a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we've always had rumors that, that Amazon's tried to buy them multiple no, times. Dude, that, everyone's that, tried to buy those motherfuckers. Bezos just dude. shows up. They, they're not for sale. Sell. Dude, it is a fucking piggy bank, dude. Do you realize like the amount of money yeah. that is shed from that place? It's all wholly owned by like by by what's his name and 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 yeah, Gabe. Gabe Gabe Newell. It's like, dude, dude, that's like a cash machine, dude. They're they're never selling. Right. And he doesn't want to be part of anybody else. And he, dude, he no. Okay. Because they, but he spun out of Microsoft to make to create Valve. I think he did that because he wanted to be his own boss. I mean, and by, he's got to be a billionaire. So if you're already a billionaire and you own your own company and it's all private, why the hell would you ever sell? Yeah, you get one. And big he spends payday. half the year in New Zealand. That's what he's doing yeah, these days. If you're a billionaire already, like I don't know, I think I, I feel like people like that that are actually motivated by the work and love to create. 
Like that's the outcome that anyone would strive for to be a billionaire and to be able to call every single shot within your co- like when when Valve's uh, like employee handbook leaked. I mean, they even said like all decisions go through Gabe. Like he is the <laughs> final say on everything. And so it's like if you're in that position already and you're already mega rich, would going from one billion to ten billion, but having a boss be worth it? Probably the, not. the question is, do you want to fund like? 10 generations or a hundred generations? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, at that level, most of them give them, give their money away anyway. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think, I think, I think they're, they're doing fine. They're never, they're never going to get, get sold in, as long as he's alive. So, right. Yeah. And, and it's actually sad to me because I would love to see them make things again. Like they've stopped making a lot of output. And when I look at Supercell's I mean, recent release, they still have they still have a fire underneath their ass to make beautiful things. And I haven't seen that from Valve. And it, it just makes me no, sad. They, like I want to see more product from Valve. Haven't we gone through this? They are not a game developer. Period. End of sentence. They they, they, they I don't even know. Sure, if sure, sure. But I, I want them to be a game developer. They're not. I, I want them to be a game developer, but though. All the people I, that I want them to create things again. We all benefit from that. No, 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 we don't. Because they, they don't have any game makers left, right? There's no one there that makes games. Like, they all left long so, ago. So to be clear, they, they did release Half-Life 2 VR to widespread critical success. They at least tried with Artifact, and I will die on a hill that that game is beautiful. So they, they've made a couple dude, shots on goal. I mean, dude, to your point, though, the they past, did hire Richard Garfield. That, that's like 20 years ago. You know, it's like, stop it. Stop, stop. They're, that's not what they are anymore. They're building fucking, you know, Steam decks and shit like that, you know, and stupid VR I know, things. I know, and, and it makes machine. me sad. Nah, dude, they're a fucking retailer, dude. They're an online retailer. I, I think they're a research institution. <laughs> they're, they're a research institution well, they have, that, that has toys. People. So I'm looking at I'm looking at their career page right now. They have four open positions for a game in the game design department. But you, I think these you, are you have to like understand though. Templates or something. Is it? But, but Valve, Valve Eric, doesn't it, hire like other is companies. For, is it for VR it? or anything, or is it, is it mixed reality or? What does oh, it, it say on there? It doesn't, doesn't say. say. It just says level designer, psychologist, which is interesting, game development, software engineer, and game designer, other. So these sound you, you kind of just like open applications or something. They, they are. They, they usually hire opportunistically. It's not something that they're usually yeah, going right. out and trying to solve for. They're just trying to collect interesting interesting people that adds right. to Valve's knowledge base. It's, it's a, just a radically different model. Yeah. Their headcount's yeah, been right. stable, again, over this period of time, largely. Very little attrition and very little hiring. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it the uh, the Greek finance minister left Valve to go to Greece to become the finance minister? Right during the, the during the debt crisis. Well, and he did the thing where he, you, you know, you start a blog when you're traveling. You're going to tell your family about your travels, and then you only have like one or two posts. He did that same yeah. thing. He he has two posts about Valve economics. Oh yeah. <laughs> Depressing. Um, all right. The last thing we'll say, uh, I, I want to applaud the uh, Warner Brothers guys on this this game, this fucking Harry Potter game, which I was saying was going to do like 8 to 10 million units. Uh, this thing could do like 14 or 15. It's supposedly like insane in terms of demand. Um, and this is not even on current gen, right? This is only on next gen and PC. So, yeah, this thing is is blowing blowing it off off. Blowing it off, and I, I unfortunately I haven't had time. Which is I, I say this with utmost uh, humility, Eric. Um, I haven't had time to play. I really do want to play. I only got through like the first forty-five minutes, and so but the game's amazing. It's selling really well. So hats off to the guys at Warner. Um, I think they needed a win, and they're getting it. Um, and uh, and the game is great. 
so anyway, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, stay out of trouble and uh, talk soon. Bye. Bye later, guys. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.